Hi, this is the Zane Lowe Interviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'm Zane Lowe. Zane Lowe, Apple Music. I'm never entirely sure how to address people who are... Sir. <laughs> Any of that formality, I don't know whether you throw it around in casual conversation. I know, obviously, when it's an official environment, then... You know, you, you're supposed to refer to them as a sir. But in a conversation like this, do I consistently refer to Paul McCartney as Sir Paul McCartney? Do I just call him Paul? Do I call him Paul McCartney? These are the kind of questions you ask yourself before you have a conversation with a beetle. You know, as a human being in a creative spirit, they are so intertwined within your life's experience from birth. One of the first things that a lot of kids are exposed to through their parents when they're very young are the Beatles. They travel with you. It's a lifelong experience. And here's the really crazy thing about the Beatles. They will continue to play that role in the life cycle for many, many years to come, such as the impact that the Fab Four had on the world and what was a very condensed and short period of time. So anyway, getting back to the dilemma, I made the decision early on when I had a chance to interview Sir Paul McCartney that I couldn't deal with the formality of it and he didn't seem to mind. So... This is my latest conversation with Paul McCartney, or as I probably overly casually refer to him in this conversation as Paul. <laughs> it's a big over-analysis, overthinking situation. What was not that was this conversation. Start to finish, my most enjoyable conversation with Paul McCartney, the latest in a year of conversations sitting right here on our interview series. It's been a busy year. Thank you for checking him out. Subscribe, add a comment, add a rating, and enjoy this. My latest conversation with Sir Paul McCartney, a.k.a. Paul McCartney, a.k.a. Paul. Zane, great to see you, man. Man, can you play that thing over your shoulder? Everyone tells me the stand-up bass is no joke. That stand-up bass is no joke. Uh, but listen, that is the Elvis Presley bass. What? Played by Bill Black. If you check out the album cover, volume, Elvis Presley Volume 1, you will see that bass on the cover with the white trim. That's actually Bill Black's oh bass. Oh, my days. Do you even, do you touch it? Do you play it? Do you stare at it? Do you worship it? I played it on the new album, yeah. I love it. On what song? On a couple of songs. Uh, Women and Wives, it's on. Wow. Yeah, it's on a few songs. But uh, it's, you know, beautiful, <laughs> deep, deep bass. But uh, there's the story of that, man. I was thrilled to, to know we were going to get a chance to speak. And uh, even happier to hear this album. Wow, I love this album. I love it. Oh, you do? Great, man. Oh, yeah. Wow. No, it's amazing. There's some incredible moments on there. Like deep, deep feeling. And we'll talk all about this, but deep, deep feeling really got me. Like when I heard that, just the words on that and the, the way you yeah. just beautifully went straight to the center of that often overlooked feeling of like feeling too much, you know? Like I love you too yeah. much and I don't know how to, how to translate yeah. that. And you just captured it perfectly, I thought. It's the strangest thing, isn't it? I was just thinking about that feeling. It's like, whoa, I think we all get it, but nobody kind of knows what it is, and I still don't. I mean, what is it, like a rush of blood or something? I don't know, energy, something. Yeah, so I just thought, oh, I'm going to try and put it down in song. Yeah. What a beautiful spot you got there. Is that? I guess that's one of the creative zones, right? That looks like a studio, or it's a very elaborate set. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. this is my kind of office in the studio. This is upstairs in the studio. And uh, this is where I do things that aren't, uh, you know, microphone related. This is where the album was uh, essentially written? No, it was kind of written all over the place, really. What happened was, you know, with lockdown, I had to kind of stay in one place, obviously, because you're locked down, or rock down, as we call it. 
<laughs> I haven't heard that yet. I can't believe we haven't come up with that. Oh my God. Come on. You came through with a clanger at the end of the year. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, the thing is I was with my family, with my daughter Mary and her kids. So that was very nice. But uh, I had to do a little bit of film music. So I was able to come here, which is 20 minutes away from where I live, to do that bit of music. And it was for an animated piece. So they had to have it soon. So I had to do that bit of work. And the government had said, go to work only if you can't work from home. So I couldn't do this music at home. So anyway, I ended up in the studio and liked it so much that I kind of made it a daily practice and uh, started finishing off songs that I'd meant to finish last year, but never had time for. And then I wrote one and then I come in and did it. So it's a collection of ways of doing it, but it was all recorded downstairs here at the studio. Thinking about it now, how important was that process toward keeping some equilibrium during isolation? Do you see a connection between this third solo album and the idea of having to be still? Yeah, there was a big connection with trying to keep equilibrium because, you know, the whole world was going mad. Suddenly there was a thing that we'd never had before. I mean, there was AIDS and there was SARS and there was avian flu, but all these things seemed to happen to other people. And then suddenly it was happening to everyone and everyone I knew and everyone in the world, you know. So it was, it was quite a shock. So... Yeah, it was really good to be able to play music uh, and make up music and put your thoughts and your fears and your hopes and your love into the music. So it kind of saved me, I must say, for about three, three or four months it took to make it. What do you like in your own company? You know, if, if you hadn't felt inspired and yet the global pandemic was a reality and you were enforced like all of us to sit still, what traditionally would you say you're like in your own company, in your own thoughts? I'm okay. You know, I, I'm okay. I do like doing things. So, uh, you know, particularly being a musician, I can be still, but I would like to have a guitar nearby. And if there's a piano in the next room, you know, that helps. But uh, generally, yeah, you know, I like to meditate. So, uh I enjoy being still and being quiet. Where I live is on a farm down here in Sussex. Uh, so nature is very important. And uh, I'm lucky I have a horse I can ride. So that is really, that's blissful, you know. What's the name of your horse? The horse is called Cheyenne. She's a beautiful, a beautiful Appaloosa mare. And in actual fact, she shows up on the album. Where? She shows up on the artwork of the album. You talked about sitting still, but always wanting a, a guitar nearby. I wanted to talk to you about your relationship with instruments. We've never spoken about this mm. because without instruments, we wouldn't be having this conversation and we wouldn't have had all the joy you brought the, the world. Um, I spoke to Dolly Parton recently, which was amazing. And she said that sometimes she just walks past an acoustic guitar on a stand, she has them all through her house and she just strums it. And if it resonates with her, she turns back around, sits down and just writes something. I loved that mm. idea. And I wonder what mm. your relationship with instruments is and how they factor into your life. Yeah, it's, it's very similar. I mean, Dolly's fantastic. So she's gotta be right. Whatever Dolly <laughs> says is right. But um, no, I, I know exactly that feeling. You know, you just go past. Yeah, you sometimes just sort of hear something, particularly if you play a chord. Um, 
So yeah, I love instruments. I mean, the first instrument I ever had was my dad gave me a trumpet and he'd been a trumpet player when he was younger. He'd, he'd played a little bit of trumpet and it actually was kind of in fashion. There was a film called The Man with the Golden Arm and it was like Harry James, a big, so it was kind of, kind of glamorous, you know, at that point. But I realized I couldn't sing with this thing in my mouth. So uh, <laughs> I, I swapped it in for a guitar and, you know, that started my love of guitars. They're really a great help when you're growing up because you've got so many questions and things flooding in that if you can get off in a quiet space with a guitar and you you kind of can tell your troubles to the guitar and often in doing that you come out of the other end and oh it's a song we used to think it was like a, the greatest therapy um and the same we had a piano in our house that my dad again played piano um for the family parties so there was always a piano there available so i started tinkering around and that became my the second instrument that i loved you know I mean, even now, if I'm in a kind of hotel or in one of these places where there's a piano in the lobby, I can't resist. I have to kind wow. of just go by it. Excuse me. Don't, you know, just... It's one thing to play piano at the family parties. It's a great tradition. It's another thing for Paul McCartney to sit in a hotel lobby and bang out Let It Be. I just, I wonder how that is for people, you know, and, and sort of what that experience is like and whether you're aware, because you have to be self-aware with the life you've lived. Yeah, I kind of know what I'm doing. You know, I, I understand that, <laughs> that. I mean, there's two parts. One part is I can't resist playing the piano. I just want to see if it's in tune and how it sounds. So that's for me. But then, you know, if there's some people around and I just do a little quick sort of bit of Lady Madonna or something, then I know I've given them a story. Yeah. And, you know, they can go home. You know what I was doing? I was in the hotel for you, eh? This bloke walks in, he plays a thing, and he was Paul McCartney. You know, so I know I'm, I know I'm doing that. But uh, in fact, a funny story was when I was on holiday, very early days of me and Nancy, and uh, we were on holiday in Morocco, and we'd come away to have a great holiday together, but it was raining every single day. You come all this way to Morocco thinking it's going to be blissful, and it was terrible, you know. So, but there was a piano in the hotel foyer so I would go in there when I knew no one was going to be around except maybe the guys setting the tables for the yeah for the evening and I would quietly just play and stuff and I wrote a song actually on Valentine's Day for Nancy called My Valentine wow so you know it sometimes goes further than just tinkling sometimes you get a song out of it okay this third McCartney record um the third of many but the third of a trilogy of solo records, really solo records, essentially yeah. you, right from start to finish. How important was it that this came out before the end of, of this year that, that none of us will ever forget, many of us want to forget, but that ultimately kept within the tradition of, of the end of a decade, start of a decade? Yeah, that was, that was good. I didn't realize, of course, I never count. So someone said to me, you know, well, that's great. You know, you did McCartney in 1970. I said, oh yeah. He said, and you did McCartney too in 1980. I go, oh, that's good. So great. So let's get this out before 2020. And as you say, though, it's been such a crazy year 
for me, for you, for everyone, everyone you, that we run into. It's one of those, wow, can you believe this shit? And I say to people, it was going to be so auspicious, 2020. It looks wow. so good on a poster. That looks, that's going to be so good. You know, you know, perfect vision. It's going to be like the greatest year. And then suddenly, boom, it was special, but in a weird way. So, uh, yeah, but it was good. Once it was pointed out to me, 70, 80, 20, I thought, well, that's nice. So we did it. It doesn't surprise me that time doesn't play as much of a factor consciously for you as it does for all of us. Um, but it also doesn't surprise me that it plays a factor at all. Everything that you've been associated with, time has flowed in this strange way through it. And mm. I can't really dive into this album without recapping to some degree. So I want to go back to 1970 and the first solo McCartney record because they are related. And this was a very tumultuous time. Um, widely documented, John had already told you and the other boys in the band that he wanted to move away from it. And you retreated and made this record. I would love some memories that spring to mind from that time as we begin this, this journey to three. The thing was, I'd really recently met Linda and uh, we were settling down together. We'd got married and we were settling down together. And because the Beatles had finished, I had a lot of time on my hands. You know, normally I'd have, we doing this, we're going to go rehearse, we're going to do a record, we're going to write some songs for the new record. And suddenly there was like nothing to do anything for. So I was just hanging around the house, but I had uh, my guitar, I had acoustic, I had electric, a little amp, there was a piano there, and I had also had a drum kit. So I was goofing around each day, you know, just for my own fun. And then, then I thought, well, actually, you know, it'd be kind of nice to get these things down because you didn't have iPhones then. So to, to get, you, get it down, you had to get in a big, serious piece of equipment. So I got um, one microphone and one Studa four-track machine. And my mate set it up and just said to me, well, look, here's what you do. If you're doing drums, you just plug this into the back of the machine. The microphone went straight in uh, to the back of the, the channel one, whatever it was. He said, and then you turn it on and go and hit the drums. And if it sounds right, you're great. If it doesn't, move the mic. So you go, <laughs> oh, okay. So that's what I did. You know, I found a kind of sweet position for the drums that would get me enough bass drum, enough this and that. And so that's what I did, you know. So it was, it was a great way to spend my time uh, because, as you said, you know, it was a difficult period. Here was this band that I'd been in uh, a lot of my life and these guys who were my best buddies ever and suddenly we, we'd split up and we weren't working together. And so we were each in our separate homes and I was in mine, uh, but as I say, having just met Linda, <clears throat> there was a romantic element to it, and there was a new discovery of, you know, thinking about a family, and uh, yeah. so all of that was, was very nice. You know, I'd be playing a bit of electric guitar, let's say, and just sort of playing around, and Linda would come in and say, I didn't know you played electric. I said, oh yeah, 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 I do, a little bit, you know. She said, oh, that's great, that's good. 
<laughs> so she was very encouraging, you know, so that would encourage me to go, right, I'm going to do it. A song with a big electric on it, you know, whatever. It sounds like she had to encourage in a lot of in a lot of ways because, and I want to reference actually a lyric on three on Find My Way, where you talk about, you know, I never thought there'd be days like these. Now you're overwhelmed by your anxieties. Mm. You've written about anxieties before. Everybody goes through them at various points in their lives, and thankfully nowadays we're far more acknowledged and far more there are tools to deal with them. But it was like mm -hmm. that, wasn't it? I mean, this this first solo album, to some degree, did pull you out of a really, as you say, a dark place based on what was going on around you. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's true. I think, you know, as I said, I think Linda was a huge help. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to think what had happened if I didn't have her. Um, but yeah, it was very dark. Uh, you know, you think about it, you're a kid and you join a little group called the Quarrymen and you're goofing around and you're learning to be a kid in a group. Then you go out to Hamburg and you learn more. You come back and you climb the sort of ladder of success till you become this phenomenal success, hugest thing ever in the Beatles. And that's your whole identity. Uh, and then suddenly whoosh, someone switches the light off. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, okay. Now, uh, looking back on it now, do you think sub subconsciously or in a subterranean way you knew there was something there that wasn't clicking with John or did it really just knock you for six? No, I, we'd always had arguments because any family, any group, you argue. I mean, not crazy ones, but just like, you know, that guitar's too loud. Uh, oh, no, it isn't. I think it is. I think, you know, you shouldn't play there. Well, I want to play there. No, I don't think it fits with the song. Well, I do. You know, you have those kind of little things. So. There was a bit of that, uh, maybe a little more than usual, but nothing, nothing major. But then I think we had the idea it was sort of coming full circle somehow, but, but very sort of gently. We didn't, there was no big bust up. And uh, we just happened to have a little meeting, a group meeting one day when George, uh, John walked in and he said, uh, I'm leaving the group. So it was that sudden. You didn't want to say, what do you mean? Because you knew exactly what he meant. He meant he should. And I, you know, looking back on it, I think, well, he just hooked up with Yoko and he was in a completely new track for his life. He had a strong woman. He loved strong women. He had a strong woman he could admire. Uh, he loved sort of experimentation. And here was Yoko saying, you know, let's take all our clothes off for the album cover. You know, that's the kind of thing appeal to John. You know, it's like, yeah, whoa, you know, just this sort of radical behavior. So looking back on it, you can see that he had to just clear the decks and say, okay, guys, you know, we've done our bit. It was terrific, it was wonderful, but I'm off. Yeah. Having said that, that's looking back on it. Actually, at the time, it was like, whoa, uh, is, is this final? And we were kind of, you know, we, we potted around for a couple of weeks thinking, does he mean it? And we'd ring each other and say, well, I don't know, is he, are we really finished? Whatever. And then there were all sorts of weirdness going on where record contracts were being negotiated and a sort of not very good manager at the time who'd come in, this guy called Alan Klein, he was saying, don't tell anyone because I'm in the middle of a negotiation. I was saying, you've got to tell them. Negotiation of what? <laughs> <laughs> you can't pretend the group's still together. We're going to get a new record when we all know it's not going to happen. Yeah. 
So it was weird in, in all those respects. It's like any uh, catastrophe. You've got to get through it or you've got to go under. And so it was like, okay, let's try and pull this together. Here we go. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's a new venture. And as I say, with Linda and with the family growing, um, that was like, okay, well, this is my direction. This is my direction now. And with music to help me through it, I can do this. I'm going to be able to manage this. So it's difficult for quite a while, but I kind of eventually got the idea of where I wanted to go. I thought, well, okay, I'll get a new band. Because I like being in bands. I like bands. It's kind of, I like making music. Uh, I like writing, I like recording. So that's what I'll do. That's easier said than done. You know, <laughs> I'll be, I'll get a band, you know. <laughs> and of course, of course, I think it was actually the right decision, but it was a weird decision to just decide to go back to the absolute square one. Because I thought my thinking was, well, the Beatles were just these four guys. We didn't know anything when we started. We knew a couple of chords, knew a couple of songs. We hadn't written much, but we thought, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, we'll work it out. And, and we did. So I thought, well, with the new band, we'll do that. I said to Linda, do you want to be keyboard? She said, uh, yeah, you know. So I said, great, you're in, you know. And it was like that. We just formed it from the ground up. And uh, it took a few years, but then we, we gradually had wings and uh, became became successful band, you know. Incredibly successful. I mean, define that decade in many respects, you know, huge hit songs you play to this day. And um, that brings us to two which I'm sure it's not lost on you that two landed at the end of Wings in the start of a new decade. So these albums come with a, a caveat of real disruption and change about them. Um, and, yeah. I, and I wanted to talk about that as well, but just while we were talking about John, just to, just to draw this particular part of the conversation to a natural end, that album came out in 1980, several months before John's life was tragically taken. And he had wanted to experiment and wanted freedom to create. And as you said, had always had big ideas and wanted to disrupt. You had ultimately over the course of these two solo careers found yourself doing the same thing. One, very influential over time. Lo-fi home recordings changed the game for a lot of people widely regarded. Two, right at the start of the 80s, hello synthesizers, hello Krautrock, hello dance music. There you are once again, the unlikely leader of it all at that moment in time. You in your own way are creating and inspiring and innovating, which is what John left the Beatles to go and do. So my question, Paul, is did you send him to and had you connected over that fact that you'd both found each other kind of in the same place after all those years? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question as to whether I linked it up, uh, but, but you're right. It was at another point when I wasn't doing anything, you know, wings had finished. So it was like, what do we do next kind of thing, you know? And as you say, I always revert to type and I just go, because I'm lucky enough to be able to play a few instruments, I just think, oh, I'll, I'll do this song. And seeing as I haven't got a band, I'll do it. With John, you know, uh, the great thing was we had begun to get our relationship back together. That was like a huge blessing for me because 
you know, when he was tragically murdered, I think if we'd have still been fighting, I'm not sure how I would have dealt with that. But it was great that we'd been speaking to each other and uh, he'd just had Sean not so long ago and he was raising the baby. So John was getting very domestic and we were talking about, you know, changing babies' nappies, diapers, and uh, we're talking about baking bread and all this kind of stuff. So it was it was very nice. It kind of receded to a nice, gentle boil. Mm. It wasn't bubbling so much anymore, you know. And I know that uh, when I'd done the uh, second McCartney 2, I know he'd listened to it because I... I heard that he was very, he was keen on the song coming up. And what would happen with me and John was, and I, he wrote this later, where he's saying, oh, bloody hell, Paul's come up with something good. God, that means <laughs> I've got to. <laughs> and that's that old dynamic again. Once again, they kind of gave birth to the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. And then he'd come up with something good. I go, oh, bloody hell, I've got to go in the studio again. It was a kind of creative competition. You know, if he did something good, I wanted to do something good and better. And then he'd see that and he'd go, right, I'm going to do something better. So it was very healthy. You know, it meant that we were not just taking it easy. We were, we were always trying for something good. You know, when you have created so many amazing moments in people's lives and in your lives created so many memories, they move into a timeline. And timelines have anniversaries. And anniversaries come with reflection. And when you talk about the Beatles and individuals like yourselves, George, Ringo, John, these anniversaries are big deals. You know, the whole world thinks about 10 years, 20 years here, 40 years as we know, which is coming up. And at the beginning, I talked about the relationship of time in your life and how it keeps showing up in a neat way, whether you realize it or not. What's your relationship with things like this in the face of how the world reacts? Because you can't avoid it when people talk about 40 years since John passed, 50 years since this album and such. I don't really take that much notice, tell you the truth. Um, How? How can you not notice it? Okay, because I'm doing stuff. I'm not thinking about having done stuff. I'm, on, I'm, I'm still on the road. Uh, I don't mean like playing concert. In actual fact, that's true as well, except for this year. But um, I'm always kind of moving forward in my mind. So people will say to me, it's 50 years since I've been here. I go, what? It is? Oh, yeah. And people will say to me, well, what year was it when you, you know, did your first Australian tour? I'll go, um, I'm not sure. Because, and I can be lazy because I know we can look it up. Yeah. You know, so I don't have to, yeah. I don't have the normal uh, parameters. Oh, we'll all tell you. Have. You don't even have to look it up. The whole world will tell yeah. you. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's our I mean. job. <laughs> what year was that? And there's, there's always someone who knows. I'm not that uh, careful about that. I don't remember years or anniversaries so much. Um, yeah, I'm good on my personal family birthdays and wedding anniversaries. Thank goodness. I, unlike a lot of men, I remember those. So, <laughs> those you know. men are in trouble. <laughs> you don't <laughs> yeah. want to be one of those men. Yeah. I know. So, you know, that's easy, but career-wise, I just know, yeah, I did that, yeah, I did that, yeah, I did that. But um, the time isn't the biggest aspect of it. It's a continuum, and I know I'm in it, 
and I know I'm on it and I'm enjoying it. So I don't have much time to look back. When I do, I love it. You know, when I do get nostalgic. You lean into it. I love it. Yeah, I really do, you know. And I will sometimes, you know, the kind of thing happens is like uh, on an album, you have a, a, a remaster, reissue, and then there's like bonus tracks that I haven't heard forever. But it's like it's my little home demo of that song. And some of those things can be very nostalgic. And wow, you know, listen to that. But uh, yeah, generally, time isn't something I, I worry about too much. I, I must say, I knew Doris Day, the great actress, singer, Calamity Jane. Once I had a secret love. I mean, I, I love Doris, like a lot of people from my generation. And in fact, uh, my daughter, Stella, is like a major fan of Doris's. She, she says she inspired her. There's a film called Calamity Jane, which is great. And she's a real tomboy, Doris. Uh, but she has to get sort of fancied up um, for a romantic scene. So she puts on this beautiful, like, yellow dress and everything. And Stella said when she saw her appear in that yellow dress, that made Stella want to be a fashion designer. Wow, Doris Day is day one. That's amazing. Day one for Stella. So it was great because years later we met her and Stella and I paid a visit to her. Stella was able to tell her that story, which Doris loved, of course. But years before that, I'd, I'd known Doris through her animal activism. She was a, she was a crazy animal activist, lovely. She had millions of dogs at her house and they all had their own little bed. And it was, she was quite, you know, she was an animal lover. Back then, you'd have been considered eccentric. That was a Hollywood eccentricity. That would have been like yeah. Doris Day and all of her dogs. Nowadays, it's common, common practice. Yeah, well, you know, time moves on. But um, I remember talking to her about things like we're talking about. And she said, time is an illusion. Do -de -do -de -do -de -do -de. Don't get spooky <laughs> on me, Doris. Do -de -do -de -do -de -do -de and it faded and I went into a psychedelic dream and I was with Doris Day and we were flying above Wyoming. And that's when you wrote Sliding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. But that was her feeling, you know, that it was uh, an illusion. I never quite worked it out and I'm, I'm not sure I think it is, but Doris did. Yeah. You know, I think about this album, once again, finding you in a space where you're able to collect your thoughts and put them into music with no distractions and no collaborators. And you're a generous collaborator. As you say, you love bands, you love collaborators, but this is just you. What is your thought process like when you're on your own? What is your thinking? How does your thinking change when you create on your own versus in a room with people around you? Well, I always create on my own, unless when I was with John, even then I would create on my own and he would, and we'd come together. Mm. Uh, we hardly ever sat down and, and had nothing. There was always some sort of idea. So, and these days I always create on my own. And um, it's a great feeling. You know, people say, well, when, when do you write and stuff? And I kind of say, well, it's, it's when I've got time, when there's just nothing to do today or this afternoon, and I'm in the mood. So I will pick up a guitar and think, I've got time. I could write a song. You know, I can't, don't just have to strum three chords and, and go to work, go to something else. So that's when it all comes to me. And I sit down 
and see if I've got some sort of an idea. Sometimes, like on this album, Find My Way, I had this idea, it was in the car, singing along to something, I'll find my way, and on my left and right, you know, uh, and I just had this little idea of, like, being in control. I don't get lost at night. I kind of finished it up, then came into the studio. But I love how that idea, I mean, when I listen to Find My Way, that feels like such an internal compass. When I hear that song, I'm trying to refine my internal compass. That's what I, the listener, take from it. Like, great, Paul's just like me. He's trying to find his own internal compass. And yet you're literally behind the wheel of your car using sat-nav going, I know my left from right. I'm driving in the dark. I mean, it's like, isn't it funny how songs change shape, you know? Are you aware of, at the time when you're writing it, that you're making the transition from literally navigation into this is something that talks about anxiety and talks about the idea of internalization? Yeah. Well, the first bit was that. Um, I found my way. Yeah, I just I just felt confident. I felt, yeah, you know, I, I pretty much can figure it out. You know, after light a fire, I know how to light a fire. You know, I pretty much can do that. I can find my way. I'm not going to get lost. But then when I came into the middle of the song, I was thinking, well, what about people who can't do that? And I know, we all know people who can't. That's what the middle is. You know, you, ne you never used to be afraid of days like these, but now you're overwhelmed by your anxieties. And so that was talking to someone like that. And then it was like, let me be your guide. You know, let, let, me, let me help you through the love you feel inside. So that was, gave the song a nice shape because it had my confidence and then the, the anxiety of this other person. So that's what that all meant to me. And so I could say, I could do the A, and then the other thing will be the B, So put them together and, and you've got a little bit of structure for the song. And it's actually also nice to sing, because the first bit is, I find my way, it's quite deep, it's quite low. It's nothing, ah, the number is there! So you go right up for the, for the middle. And that's like a nice thing to do in the song. You know, that's it for me, I, I just sit down at a, uh, piano or guitar and just start noodling, just start doing something. And if I find a chord that I like, I go, oh, I love this chord. Oh, so I just will start strumming with this chord. And, you know, you probably go through memories that that chord evokes. You know, if it's like C, if it's like C major, then I will go right back to when I first learned that and some of the songs I knew then, there's a song called Young Love. They say for every boy and girl, there's just one love in this whole world. Uh, and that was for me as a teenager, that was like, I love that song. So when I, when I strum C, that brings those emotions back. And sometimes then I will just recycle them and not copy the song, but use that emotion, oh yeah, okay. And, and then once I'm off on the trail, and if I have a little time, as I said, then I will just follow and just see what the next sentence ought to be, you know. And that was the thing when I was working with John, that was like, I'd say a sentence and he'd suggest the next one. And then I'd suggest the next one. So we'd ping pong off each other, you know. And often we got a good results because John was such a different personality. Like I said in Find My Way, there's two personalities. There's the confident and then the anxious. 
Um, yeah. When I'm sitting down with John, it would be like I'd go, it's getting better all the time. And he'd go, couldn't get much worse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you get that great A and, A and B thing. You know, you go, yeah, great. It moves you on. It's just a voyage of discovery, you know. I mean, it sounds corny, but it is. And that's what I love about it. You never know what you're going to come out with. No idea whether this is going to be a warm song, a sad song, uh, a story song. You can never tell. But as the song unfolds, you start to sort of, oh, you get the idea. You go, I see where I'm going. And uh, you find your way. I want to talk about Winterbird. You know, birds have, have played such a, a role on and off throughout your writing. And I love how you relate to the idea of freedom and flight. And it feels like there's something really inspiring to you about the idea of leaving your body and being able to disappear and, and have no fixed destination or, or no one can catch you. Is that, has that been something that, that, that you keep drawing to? Has that been with you your whole life? Well, I do love that. I would guess that a lot of people love that. Um, when I was a kid, um, I lived in a very urban situation on the edge of Liverpool. But then if I took a, a walk for about a mile, I could be in deep woods and countryside. It, it's like you just fell off the edge of Liverpool. And, <laughs> and there would be most beautiful bird life and nature. So, so I've always loved that escape. You know, I, I saw it as an escape. And so I was very interested in all the various birds and things. And I've carried that all my life. This idea that, you know, you can sort of escape in various ways from the normal humdrum life that you might be leading. I mean, I'm not complaining because I don't live a humdrum life. I've got a pretty good life, you know. Um, but yeah, the, I, that idea, then it was important because, you know, my humdrum life then was school, homework, doo -doo -doo, walk, see the birds. Yes. You know, so I've always had a deep love of that. Uh, and I still, I still feel strongly about that. So a bunch of my stuff has been like Blackbird is to do with escape and freedom and arise from your bonds, you know. And that was, that was allied uh, at the time with civil rights movement. That must have been an amazing moment for you to perform that song in front of Thelma Mothershed Ware uh, and Elizabeth Eckhart, who of course were two individuals part of the Little Rock Nine. Um, and I know yeah. a few years back, you got a chance to perform that and they were in the audience and um, we haven't spoken since that. So I wonder how that experience was for you. It was fantastic. It, it was beautiful because as a kid, I'd seen like you probably seen the newsreel where there's all the white supremacists booing these black kids going into school and they're teenage, teenage girls, you know, the two you're mentioning. And so I'd always felt annoyed at, at, at my race. The whites could be that crazy and that horrible to people, you know, and we didn't have so much of that in Britain. I must say it wasn't like the deep South, you know, it was only when we went down there, you started to realize that it was, quite intense. Yeah, so I'd always heard about Little Rock being a famous, famous uh, point in civil rights history. So when we were playing Little Rock, I was able to offer tickets to the girls. Someone said they're still around, but they're, they're ladies now, you know, they're 
And they, they had a great education because they stuck with it. They went to this good school. So I was very proud to sort of talk to them and to play Blackbird because I introduced Blackbird on the show as being, you know, about civil rights, you know. Um, so it was really a warm feeling. I felt very proud to meet these ladies, you know, and it's just great to see a resolution of a story like that. So it was a, it was a great moment for me. And they were they were very pleased, you know, and so we all had a great time. It was it was nice. It was, you know, again, some kind of full circle from when I was a kid seeing these little black and white movies. Here we were, and I was with the two girls I saw in those newsreels. And you know what? They turned out great. I've spoken to so many artists, especially at times like this, where the idea of writing and expressing oneself and how it's attached to the events of the day and what is going on outside the window. It's, it's challenging for the artistic spirit to force itself into that space. It has to come from a place of authenticity and passion and mm, a real true. willingness to make a difference. It, we, I often say, Paul, like I, I never expect my favorite artists to show up, but I respect it when they do. And so you have always throughout your life at various moments found a way to transcribe what's going on. And you dress it in a way that often is only uncovered at a later stage. You have protested, you have written songs and been active. You do like to write about those things. What is it for you that gives you the confidence to be able to move into that space and write about things and not be intimidated? I think I don't know I'm doing it. I think that's, that's one of the things. If I consciously am outraged by something in, in politics, or just in the world, some of the terrible things you hear about. Um, it's not that easy for me to just sit down and write, uh, I don't know, something about the Yemen or something, you know? Even though I'm outraged by the situation there, it's not easy for me. But it is easier for me to write a veiled version of it. So if I'm thinking about civil rights, and I'm thinking about the, the black women being abused as they go into the school, then to me, I would I prefer to see it as an image of a blackbird. And then I, I talk about broken wings. So I use metaphors so that on the one hand, if you're a little kid, a lot of little kids say to me, the blackbird's their favorite song. So if you're a little kid, they don't know about the civil rights. They're, they're seeing a blackbird and the freedom, and they're feeling the idea of just escaping barriers and stuff, you know, and just, they just like it as a, a little song. But so for me, that's what nearly always happens is like in Let It Be, I'll talk about, you know, darkness and times of trouble and stuff, but I'm not always, I'm not often specific because it's just not my way as I'm much more comfortable talking about it, but veiling it somehow. I don't, it's not hiding it. It's just, just using a metaphor. I sometimes think that's stronger. You know, I mean, my biggest protest song really would be Give Ireland Back to the Irish. Now there's no metaphors there. That is just dead straight after Bloody Sunday. But I, and I felt I had to write it. I didn't really think it was this very successful song. I mean, it actually it actually got to number one in Ireland, 
<laughs> but, um, you know, for me as a song, I wouldn't say it was one of my best songs. So that to actually write uh, overtly about a situation is a little more difficult for me than it is for some other people. Because of the framework of it, because you don't have the freedom to create and, as you say, paint a picture using all the colors on the palette, you have to stick to the ones that are in the news. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, it's it's just I've allowed more poetry. If, I, if I've gone in with a sort of metaphor, then I, I've got more room to play and and I can think of the same subjects that are bothering me, uh, the lack of freedom and things like that and you know, the broken wings, the sunken eyes, all this idea. And I know what I'm talking about and I think a lot of people do. I mean, you think about it, how many people this year particularly have got broken wings? The metaphor is a strong one uh, for a lot of people. Um, so instead of saying, you know, you're out of work, you lost your job, well, your work closed down, then I would, I would talk about broken wings and sunken eyes. And to me, it's strong, but it, it's not as uh, specific. You know, when I think about animal rights and what you and Linda embarked on when it became a, a point of passion for you to raise awareness, it really looking back on it now, when you consider how much of a global movement that is, it probably felt like a grassroots campaign compared to now, where hundreds of millions of people feel the same way. To have spent a lot of your life really sticking to one particular message to see it catch like that and become yeah. such a huge important moment how has that felt paul so good it really so good when we started we were on a, a farm and there were lambs playing in the field and we were eating leg of lamb so we went whoa wait a minute we made the connection we said maybe we can stop this and we did but it was very difficult because there was no recipes there was Nobody knew about it, so it was like, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? But we did it, and we did it, and we eventually developed it and stuck with it, as you say. So it's so gratifying now um, to go into certain restaurants. I mean, there's a favorite restaurant of mine in New York. It, it happens to be a vegan restaurant, and it tastes so good. And the people who serve you are so cool and young and vibrant. And I just sit there and I just say, to whoever's with me, I said, you don't know what this feels like to me. It's that deep, deep feeling. You know, it just feels so, so great that we've arrived at a point where this is normal because it certainly wasn't when, you know, when we started. Was it stressful for you and Linda at times in the beginning? Did you feel at times like you're under attack and that you really were outliers and that that message was hard to carry? Yeah, you know, the thing is, there is this thing that people like to band together. So I, I grew up in Liverpool eating traditional British food. Yes, you, what you had this week, you would have next week and the week after that. And the, you know, it's only like <laughs> only like a Christmas that anything ever changed. So a lot of people who still still live like that, and in a way, I think they think it's like a badge of honor. So that so that when you sort of say, "Well, no, I'm vegetarian," you kind of go, "Oh," and they like to make jokes about it. So you just have to get used to it. As you say, 
the world's caught up. So the jokes seem a bit sillier these days. You know, it's like it doesn't work as well as you used to. Well, he's a vegetarian. <laughs> and we'd all laugh, you know. Well, well, can you imagine trying to launch that campaign now with social media? A grassroots campaign like that now with social media. On the one hand, the message would fly so much quicker. But on the other hand, being someone who seeks solace in the countryside and wants the space to be able to collect your thoughts and present that message methodically, I don't know. Would you have even leaned into something like that with social media at your fingertips because of the energy and intensity it generates? It depends. It depends if I was young. And we're talking about the same situation as social media. I think I would have embraced it and really, you know, leaned into it. As you say, I would have thought, well, okay, let's get to work. Here's what I'm cooking today. And it's not that same old rubbish you've always had all your life. People say, oh, I don't know if I could be vegetarian. I said, well, look, the thing is, it's actually very easy these days. It's so easy. But I say to people, you know, you tend to grow up and... When you're 20, 21, you don't think, oh, I could change a lot of things. I say to some people, you can actually just look at your life and think, do I really want roast beef on a Sunday and, uh, you know, sausages on a Friday? Or, or am I actually going to experiment? Is, uh, am I at a point in my life where it might be fun to try some other stuff, you know? And uh, that's what I've found is that, Having to fill that hole in the middle of the plate, which was what we used to say when we first started, it was like it was veg with something, and suddenly there was nothing. Um, now you don't have to do that. I, I say to people, some of my best friends are meat eaters. You know, it's not, not like I've got a, a crusade against anyone who does that. I get it. I used to do it. Mm. But I, I mm. think it's a little bit boring, and I think it's a little bit... Uh, unexciting. I think you can have a more exciting life than that. And if you can and if you if you want it, why not? I think about a song like Seize the Day and it, it really jumps out on the record. Um, it's not my favorite uh, because I love deep, deep feeling and I love sliding what? and I love some of the I love that you really love that. Oh, right. I love it. Um, but Seize the Day really jumps out because it is a brilliant song and is probably the one song on the record that I feel you knowingly know that you're drawing some of that inspiration from those recordings of the 60s mm. into 70. That's true. The drums. Yeah. You know, the piano, the arrangement. And I wonder how it feels when you're writing a Beatles song 50 years after the Beatles broke up and what that feeling, what it evokes in you. Yeah, no, it's a great feeling because, you know, it's a style I love and I'm used to. But what happens is... When you're first doing that, you, you fall into the natural groove of doing that and think, oh, this is, I'm, this is nice. I'm enjoying this. I wrote that on piano. So I'm thinking, yeah, I like this. But then you, you, you check yourself. You go, whoa, am I, is this like too retro? Uh, is this too beatly? Do I need to kind of stop and get radical here somewhere? You check yourself all the time, you know. Is this what I want to do, or should I just try and do something else? But definitely you spotted it with that one. The chorus, um, the, the descending bass line, is, it's very beatly. Um, but, but you know what, once you've done that little question and said, you know, should I be doing this? The answer is yes, you should. Just enjoy it, just, uh, just embrace this whole thing and have some fun. So I did, but well, you spotted it. That's, uh, that was the feeling definitely on that.
And you enjoy it when you hear the multitude of artists that come out with the same descending baseline who lean into the inspiration. Many people have said, and I don't disagree, that it was done right the first time. That when the Beatles created what you created over the very short period of time that you did, that music after that had no choice but to tip its cap yeah. because it was done right the first time. Well, you know, I do think it is harder uh, because the Beatles' body of work was so varied and so complete. It covered a lot of genres, you know, from like love song through little acoustic-y things, through big rocking things, through yep. crazy, you know. Experimental studio experimental craziness. Stuff, yeah. yeah, I have heard that. People say, well, you've done it all. You know, what's left? But um, on the other hand, I think that there's plenty of people who kind of embrace that. I just heard something about the Foo's new thing of shame, shame. Yeah, I, that has that to me. You know, could have been written with the with the Beatles in mind, or it could have been written in the '60s. But you know, once you're writing a song and it feels good, you can't betray the song and say I'm not going to finish you because you sound like something I've heard before. Yeah. You you owe it to the song and to yourself to just go with it and finish it. So I, I think there's plenty, plenty more to be done. And then you get the advent of, you know, hip hop and suddenly it's a whole new world. So I think I think there's plenty of great music out there and plenty of places for people to go. But I, I, I agree, we kind of limited the field a little bit. Did I ever ask you what your favorite Beatles record was? And did you swerve that question? I can't remember. I, I always swerve it. Now, um, when, people, <laughs> when people do ask me that... Um, now would be a good time to clear the decks. <laughs> I always say, um, you know my name? Look up the number, which is a zany, zany little B-side that nobody knows. But we had such fun making it. It's like a little comedy record. And I just remember the joy of making it. But there's a lot of songs that I love uh, of the Beatles. You know, I think, I think Strawberry Fields is a great song. You know, I think Hey Jude worked out great. Uh, you know, so I've got a lot of favorite songs. Blackbird I love, um, Eleanor Rigby I love. Um, but let me ask you this. If you could create an aggregate in your head, top of your head, which one do you think you probably listen to the most throughout your life? What would be the natural draw? I would say probably Let It Be as a song. It's, it's sort of, it's the most ubiquitous. It's sort of got everywhere. Ubiquitous from the Latin ubiquo, meaning everywhere. <laughs> Come on, you, give it You up. rock stars, you rock give stars. You're, up, always, you're yeah, amazing, <laughs> but I love you rock stars. You're always so self-conscious about not having a proper education. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, last question, Paul, for this time. The 60s, Beatles, civil rights. I've heard of them. Yeah, you know, the, the civil rights, the, the move into a tumultuous 70s full of political assassination and war and 80s Thatcher, Reagan, 90s technology terrorism, climate change, Trump, you know, mm. your life you've written through these decades where change is inevitable, I'm giving you the headlines. As you've moved through your life, is there a mantra or a thought or a sentence or an observation or a feeling to you, not for the whole world, not speaking for me or anybody else in this room or, or the next, helps you cut through that 
and simplify the human experience? Yeah, I mean, to me, the thing that uh, resonated with me when I was at school, it's just a phrase from Shakespeare, it's to thine own self be true. I've always thought that's very sensible, very strong, and I've lived by that and I continue to. You know, you're trying to be true to yourself. You're trying to not not have too much BS in your life. Um, so to me, that would be something that helps me cut through the rubbish and the craziness around to, to sort of center and just say, okay, to, to my own self, I should be true. To thine own self, be true. The incredible Sir Paul McCartney on the interview series right here, his brand new album, Three. Following one in 70, two in 80, and then 40 years later, we get three. Everything done by Paul McCartney himself and now streaming alongside, I mean, the most timeless back catalog of remarkable music on Apple Music. Thank you so much if you've subscribed already. If not, please do. The interview series will continue. We started it this year. If you take a look at the list of conversations that we've been able to share this year, it's looking and sounding pretty good. Add a comment, add a rating. Thanks again.